Hello and welcome to Nonprofit Profits. Thank you so much for rocking with us to the fourth episode. And today we have a special guest. We have Dr. Angel Gonzalez, the head of school at De La Salle Academy. De La Salle Academy is an amazing middle school that focuses on educating socioeconomically disadvantaged students that are high performing academically from all over New York City. I must say as an alumni of the school, it has had an amazing effect on me and my current trajectory in education and professionally. Come and hear about the effect that a high quality education can have on the lives of socioeconomically disadvantaged students from all over the city. Learn what it takes to build a community based on Lasallian values. Very interesting talk, I must say. And just hear about an amazing man doing amazing work. All right, today we have Dr. Gonzalez. He is the head of school at De La Salle Academy. He's been an amazing teacher for me. And one thing that you have to know now, I'm gonna let him say his story. He's also from the Bronx. So that's the most important part of this all. So Dr. Gonzalez, why don't you start off telling the people a little about yourself? One, your all your credentials and your role at De La Salle, but then two, your upbringing into where you are today. Yeah, absolutely, Emmanuel. Thank you for having me on. It, it gives me a great deal of pride uh, to be on here with you. I'm seeing all that you've accomplished and to be able to support a really wonderful project like this one. Um, so Angel Gonzalez, uh, head of school at De La Salle Academy. Uh, I've worked there for 12 years. This is my 12th year. Um, worked in a variety of roles from social studies teacher to now uh, head of school. Um, but as uh, Manuel, you mentioned, uh, started really in the Bronx with my story. Uh, lived up in the Wakefield section of the Bronx over on 223rd Street uh, off of White Plains Road. So lived mostly amongst my West Indian, Jamaican, uh, Trinidadian folks. Uh, I was probably one of the few Colombians on the block. So most people on the block knew me and my family just by Colombia. They would never know our names, but they would say, oh, hey, there goes Colombia. And so that would be uh, our nicknames. Um, but really, really fond memories of growing up on that block. Uh, I do go back and visit from time to time. The people that, that work in that bodega are the same people that saw me grow up as a little kid. Uh, and so it's really nice to be able to go back and, and visit um, and kind of hang out with them. But um, but yeah, that's that's really where I grew up and where my, where my start began. Awesome. And so we're talking on this podcast specifically about the power of education and mm -hmm. how it kind of informs a lot of underprivileged kids to kind of elevate socioeconomically speaking. And so for you, um, you're an incredibly well-educated man. Just for context, you went to Hunter College. After going to Hunter College, Dr. Gonzalez got his PhD at UC Berkeley. So very, very academic individual. So could you talk a little bit about the genesis? Because similarly, what we share is that we both went to De La Salle Academy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in some ways that connects to the, to the story of living in the Bronx in that, you know, growing up, I think, you know, there were opportunities for us in the public system to to do good work and to kind of challenge ourselves, but it, they weren't um, very abundant. And so, you know, as as I noticed and my teachers noticed, my parents noticed that maybe I needed more of an academic challenge, uh, then we kind of had to kind of look for these opportunities. and. Um, teachers would always bless me with different applications or let us know of different opportunities. And one of those opportunities uh, was De La Salle Academy. So I remember I got an application for that. Uh, and really, you know, I think like most around the city, when you grow up in a particular neighborhood or borough, you don't really leave your block. You don't really leave your neighborhood. So this prospect of having to attend middle school uh, in the city was like a whole other thing. And, and you know, I remember when we went down to take our entrance exam, at that point, De La Salle was uh, located on the Upper West Side. You know, uh, my mom and I took really the number two train for the real first time to go down to the city. Like we had been, you know, down to the city in a car or with other people. But I remember my mom and I had to kind of, you know, put on a brave face and figure out how to navigate this thing. And we got lost on the way into the city. And I remember it was a really cold January day. And uh, we somehow were able to make it uh, into the exam. And uh, it was at that point a three stage process. And um, made it through all three rounds and, and got in. And that really changed my life because, you know, I think for one, on the one hand, it got me out of the block to see the, a larger world. 
that was beyond just the the people I knew and the and the sites that I had seen, but also exposed me to other kids from around the city. It exposed mm. me to other cultures, other religions, uh, other traditions. Kids were coming from Queens, from uh, Brooklyn, you know, from from uh, Harlem, and so. Um, that would be the first time I really encountered other kids from other neighborhoods. So I think not only was it that it provided a rigorous academic program, but I think it also allowed me to broaden my ideas about who people you know, are, right? And this broader idea of what humanity looks like, not just by reading about it, but, but living and, and, and learning in community with one another uh, and trying to really understand what that meant, uh, both the, the positives, but also the challenges that come with trying to learn and, and live with, with people who are different from who you are. Uh, and so that really shaped then this idea of, I think, being able to leave De La Salle and go anywhere I wanted because not only was I academically prepared, but I felt I had developed the skills to be able to go into places where there were people who were different than who I was. Uh, and for a lot of us, when we left De La Salle, that meant going to predominantly white institutions that uh, we're certainly more affluent than the places we had gone to. And, um, but I think both that was challenging, but also at the same time, I think it allowed me to see people as human beings first uh, and to allow myself to, you know, feel a sense of uh, pride in who I was, but also to be able to feel like I belonged, uh, even though it felt challenging at times, uh, that I was completely worthy and deserving of, of being in any space and to ask any questions. And uh, while certainly there were struggles at the beginning, I ultimately landed well and, and was able to then move on uh, to college universities. And, you know, to be honest with you, I mean, yeah, I really appreciate the, the, the accolades and, and, and uh, the respect to give towards the credentials. But, you know, if you would have asked me at De La Salle, did I want to get a Ph.D. or did I want to go to UC Berkeley? I honestly I would have told you I knew uh, what I wanted to do. And. Uh, probably at that time I wanted to become a soccer player or I probably had delusional ideas about being in the NBA. But I think, you know, as that's all of us, along, by the way, that is absolutely, absolutely all, of all of us. Right. <laughs> um, some of us more delusional than others. Right. Uh, I think I think ultimately it's it's um, the questions that one starts to ask about the world uh, that lead us to figure out not what our career job is, but what is our vocation? Like, what are we being called to do? Right, I think is really the bigger thing that we're trying to sort out uh, as we go through the educational journey. And a lot of that is shaped um, not just by the course content, but the experiences we go through as we go through our, our education, through our lives. And for me, that bigger question kept being, you know, why did, why is there so many different versions of school? Right, like I had I start off in this public school in the Bronx, then I went into this gifted and talented program within the public system, then went to this independent school. Then I went to a boarding school. Then it was a, uh, uh, I actually spent a year at Pace University at a private university, then transferred to a public university at CUNY, and then went to a public university in California. So for me, the, the question was always like, why are there so many different kinds of models and systems and spaces? Um, who gets access to what model? Like who has the, which schools have the resources, which ones don't? And that really began to shape questions I was asking. And, you know, a lot of the courses I was taking in my upper division uh, undergraduate career helped were really to try to help me answer those questions. And that led me to places like sociology, anthropology, um, education studies, uh, and ultimately started to inspire in me um, a motivation to do research on these pieces. And um, it was a, a professor, a, a sociology professor pulled me aside after class and said, hey, you know, I really think you, you do some really great writing, some great thinking. Have you ever thought about getting a PhD? And I remember at that point, I was really sort of starting to aim towards trying to do something in social work or you know, something in those lines, like direct service. And uh, I really had never thought about it. And he said, well, you know, um, we're offering a scholarship. We're offering uh, a stipend for you to actually participate in this program. We'll pay for your, your studies. Um, wow. and, um, we want you to dedicate yourself to your research and to apply to graduate school. Uh, and that really, again, another life changing moment, right? Somebody who saw something in me that I didn't see in myself, uh, very similar in Sir De La Salle, I think. 
and put me on a new trajectory, right? And how funny that is that those small moves and those people and institutions can make such a big difference. Um, but then that then set me up to apply to graduate school. And that's how I ended up at Berkeley. Um, but it wasn't something that I had planned or something that I always knew I was going to do. Um, and to be honest with you, early in my life, you know, when I was a young kid growing up in the Bronx, I wasn't really, you know, really into reading and writing. That wasn't my thing. Like I was more into science and 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 sort of more hands-on work that was a little bit different than that. But um, but then found myself, found my voice as a writer, as a researcher. Uh, and then, you know, the rest of it is, is history. But, and so can you um, that's talk sort of a little bit more? Got you. And could yeah. you talk a little bit more about how that teacher kind of inspired the path that you took? Because obviously you're kind of in a very similar situation yourself. You're kind of leading the charge for the next generation kids. Hopefully one De La Salian that just graduated is going to get their PhD. So mm -hmm. if you could speak more to how that influence played a role in your decision making and how important it was for supporting mm -hmm. that development. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, first of all, I mean, the other thing I want to remark about that situation is um, it was uh, a sociologist, but it was a black male sociologist uh, who pulled me aside. And I say that not because I don't think there were other wonderful professors in the program or, um, you know, that they were other people who were helpful that were not people of color, but there was something about being, you know, finding someone who was a mentor, who you shared some identity markers with, um, or some background context and connection with to kind of advise you on that path, right? How important it is for us to see ourselves in people who have been to the other side of where we're going, or can be a voice of connecting with you about the different questions you have, even when you don't have the certainty about what you're doing. And so with him, it wasn't just that one time. He had been mentoring me, you know, in different ways up to that point, even after that, way after that. And he and I still remain in touch. Um, but, it, you know, I think that's such an important thing, like the relationships piece, right? How are we allowing students to be able to find adults um, or mentors in their lives uh, that can connect with many different kinds of people, right? Not just, you know, uh, one one sort of group of people. And I think you know, when I think about our faculty, when I think about my administration at De La Salle, I often think about that. None of us will be able to connect with all students, no matter how well-intentioned we are, um, you know, no matter how much that's my desire. Um, there are things I've simply have never gone through because of who I am, and that's fine. Um, but that means making sure that I have a staff and a group of adults and mentors that come from many different walks of life that you know, if it's, you know, if there's one kid who won't be able to see themselves in me or won't be able to feel a sense of connection with me, that there are other adults, there are other people on staff um, that they can connect with and and how important that is for us to be able to continue to do that work. So I think that really showed up in that moment that there was someone who could make that connection with me, talk to me about my passions, um, but then open, you know, opportunities, provide access, um, not be a gatekeeper to things, but to really be a gate opener, right? That allowed some of us to experience and to see that there are other things that are possible for us. Got you. And that kind of goes right into De La Salle and kind of what mm -hmm. you're doing with your administration. So, but before all of that, yeah. in terms of the now, could you give a little context about De La Salle Academy? So sure. um, full disclosure, the reason I rep De La Salle so hard is because I went there and I really do appreciate what they've invested in me. And so um, I think the main mission of the school, how you support socioeconomically disadvantaged kids from all parts of the city, so beautiful. But I think you could say it better than me. So please go ahead. I think I think you put it pretty well. So De La Salle was founded in 1984 um, by Brother Brian Cardi. And it was uh, started at a time where in this city, and in some ways it continues to be the case, there wasn't a ton of access um, for low income, you know, low, you know, low wealth communities to be able to access um, a quality education in general, but particularly when it came to gifted and talented programs. A lot of those programs were taking place outside of the boroughs, usually in the city, um, in wealthier, more affluent communities. Um, so there was not a, a lot of access to kids who needed or wanted or families that desired for their kids to be challenged more, to be able to have access to spaces where um, 
again, they could be, you know, with other kids who are uh, in a similar trajectory of just having a lot of intellectual curiosity, um, wanting to have uh, to go at a, at a faster accelerated rate. Um, and so that really was, I think, the impetus behind this school was how do we address this issue in our educational um, pipeline where there are kids who who want to you know be able to push themselves and go faster, but just can't in in a, in a different setting. So um, that was open 1984. The mission really, as you stated very well, um, to provide access to sort of these accelerated independent school um, curriculum uh, for low-income students uh, in the middle school. And I think that's the other piece that's so important, that middle school is where we're making the intervention, right? That oftentimes early childhood or college or high school gets more of the attention around educational research. Uh, and the general discussion on education, but um, you know the foresight of our founder to say, well, actually, middle school is probably one of the most critical junctures uh, in our in our history, biographical history, um, where we really are asking profound questions like, who am I? You know, what is my place in the world? Um, it really becomes a critical place for us to answer that, and in some ways, that then feeds into who do we want to become, right? What is our calling? What is our vocation? Um, and we believe that middle school, you need to have the right balance between having a strong commitment to academics, but also making sure you have a strong commitment to developing uh, the whole child, the whole student, um, allowing them to feed their emotional and spiritual uh, and social beings, right? And that that's a big part of uh, what will create long lasting change and uh, the ability for students to be able to have you know, the fortitude to go through the rest of the educational process, because you could have really bright kids who don't have the social, emotional, and spiritual strength to be able to withstand some of the challenges that you undoubtedly and I undoubtedly faced in high school and in college and eventually in graduate school in the professional workplace. But I think when you've built the solid foundation of who you are, your non-negotiables, a good support system, even when you encounter those things, the idea is um, you're able to overcome them. Uh, you're able to be resourceful um, and you're able to persist um, to be able to finish. So, you know, one of the biggest statistics that we're very proud of at De La Salle is that, you know, um, our alumni, uh, 90, about 94% of them uh, graduate uh, college in four years. Um, and I think that says a lot about um, sort of the, the long lasting work. Um, the De La Salle contributes to, and by no means is the only one because there are other institutions that serve them well, um, but that, that we're a piece of that. And we like to think that that's um, a really important thing for us to think about. And what's so amazing about that statistic is that it's a middle school that is producing right. this college completion rate within right. four years, not a high school. Um, amazing. Right. And so I think when people talk about accelerated curriculum, they understand we're going to give these kids a more rigorous course load. But this other side of De La Salle, the community aspect, I don't think people as intuitively get what a De La Salle community is like. And I think that is, for me, one of the most beautiful things because there's mechanisms for the students to participate and take ownership and agency of the space that they're in. People are cleaning classrooms. People are chosen to stand up and lead. So if you could talk about how you intentionally build that community and that structure for students to step in and step up, I'd appreciate it. So one of the earliest things that was done during the founding period of the school was that there was a document created called the Elements of Community. And that was co-created between uh, the administrators, the students, the parents at the time, the families, the faculty. And the idea is, you know, at that point, the question they faced was, do we want to just be a school or do we want to be a school and a community? And if we wanted to do that, um, it wasn't just enough to set up rules, but what are our values? What are the things that we want to strive for day in and day out? We may not always be successful. We may not always be perfect at them. But what are the things that we're going to commit ourselves to doing as we live in community? And, you know, I think one of the things we often talk about, De La Salle, is that one of our core commitments is that we do no harm, but we also allow no harm to come to other people. Uh, and that we think that's a higher standard to uphold because it asks us to sacrifice at times our own individual needs for the needs of the community. Uh, and whether that is, you know, how we 
are mindful of ourselves in space, how we are mindful of if another child or another student is doing something that isn't great, you know, in New York City, at least our, our, uh, what we're brought up to think about is like, mind your own business. Don't get into other people's stuff. Let them make their choices. But in some ways, we're trying to advocate for a more countercultural um, place where we say, no, it is our business. That's, that's my brother. That's my sibling. That's my sister. Right? I, I need to intervene and make sure they're okay because it's my responsibility. Right, and living in community to make sure that um, I can be supportive of them, or I can hold them accountable. Uh, and so, for a lot of us, that is the the culture that we built, and that that doesn't just extend to when folks are getting themselves into trouble. But how do we treat space? As you correctly um, indicated, that you know every student um, has a cleanup assignment uh, every week that they have to clean classrooms or a common space in the school. Um, that you know, I emphasize on the students like our cleaning staff janitorial or facility staff are there not to maintain the building, not there to clean up after us, right? And making sure that that's something that is of value, right? That's something that people understand about the school. Um, but also that we make space for us to contemplate really difficult questions with each other. So we hold community meetings every week. Um, we have advisories in the homerooms where we discuss really important community issues that come up. Uh, we go off on retreats, right, at different grade levels um, to mainly make space so that the students and adult community get together um, and really just take time away from the academics and focus on, like, who are we and what are we doing? How are we doing? How do we be, how can we be better supportive of one another at this juncture of the year? So it's it's a commitment that we make, not just in word, Emmanuel, but it's also a commit, it is structured into the very way that De La Salle runs, that there is time and space and also a rigor to practicing community, that there is something that is, it's not, it doesn't just happen. It's something that you put work into. Uh, and that means you have to give it time and space. And so as you are building this community or, and not just you, the whole community is kind of building itself. Uh, do you ever feel when people are not bought into the mission that that is a time of difficulty and then how do you from that moment try to reintegrate people because you said we're, you're trying to build almost a countercultural type of mm -hmm. system at De La Salle and sometimes you know a lot of the kids their home lives might not be matching the lifestyle that we want to build here at De La Salle sometimes people are dealing with trauma backgrounds there's issues on their block that is really confounding I know when I started going to De La Salle, it was not the most stable, peaceful time for me. And yeah. De La Salle really provided an opportunity to go to be like, you know what, I don't need to deal with whatever's at home, I can just go here and be myself. And so when you're dealing with kids who might be in a similar situation, how do you really get them to buy in and be in the fold? Well, I think in many ways, that is, that is where the, you know, the spiritual part of the school's mission comes into play. Because, you know, we can become very institutional. And I think to the point where you tell kids, all right, like, you know, three strikes and you're out. There's a zero tolerance for this and a very zero tolerance model where, you know, either you're bought into the mission or you haven't. And if you don't, you know, you're, you're out. And I think what De La Salle does, and it's a little bit messier and honestly can, you know, it can be frustrating for people who are not, who haven't been doing it for a while. But it's really doing all you can to stick with every single child as best as you can. It doesn't always work out. But I think being able to say to yourself, you know, there is something deeper about that this child or this family is trying to teach us. Or there's something that we need to get to the bottom of that is uh, making the situation difficult for this family. Um, how do we stick with them? How do we try to address root causes to make sure that they are um, supported? Um, but that really, that is our mission as a school, right? If we wanted just the well-behaved kids who get straight A's or straight E's all the time, uh, we'd be teaching a school of robots, right? And, and our, our idea is that, you know, because middle school is such a time of great challenge of difficult questions, um, we have to be able to see in each and every single child the opportunity to have a sacred experience that is transformational. Um, that is one that we see, you know, if, if this is the way you put it, that we see God in our children, right? That we see the universe creation in our children, especially those that are that give us a run for our money, 
right? That there, that is something where the work really is, right? It's not with the, always going to be the kid who is going to be perfectly compliant and hands in their work. Um, but that the mission really gets lived out when things are difficult. And, um, that's when the really transformational work happens. Got you. Um, so in terms of the outcomes that De La Salle has seen, Mm -hmm. so you kind of alluded to it earlier saying that 94% of the alumni graduate college, that is a beautiful statistic. Could you speak to other outcomes, not only just like the quantitative data aspects, but some of the takeaways that students have upon graduating from De La Salle? Yeah, I would say that most students um, often remark about sort of, you know, I think you kind of alluded this to yourself too, who they came in, who they came out as, or have evolved. Right. I know that one of my colleagues, Dr. Tapscott, who is also a uh, alum of the school, often tells the kids, "We're not here to change you. Right. We don't want to. We don't want to change anybody. But we want people to grow. Right. We want people to take what." what the world has given them, you know, their God-given talents, their um, whatever, whatever it is they bring, their community, their identity, their culture. And we want you to use that to grow, right? And to continue to expand and to evolve. Um, and so I think, you know, the idea here really is, as, as you said earlier, some kids come in really guarded, right? They come in, you know, um, distrustful of institutions, distrustful of adults, because in their past, there, there have been situations that have created mistrust, right? You know, how do I believe, you know, you're talking about love, care, and respect, or, you know, how do I believe you, right? And I think it's that experience of living in community that ultimately transforms people uh, to be able to see that that's possible, that there can be hope in institutions and schools and adults again, uh, in peers, right? Because that's another thing that many kids experience before they come to De La Salle is bullying, right? Like being able to feel like, oh, I can be in a community of people where I can be myself, right? And not fear, um, you know, some type of, of of retribution or action against me. And so I think for a lot of our, our, our graduates, that's one of the big things is feeling the sense of breaking down those guards, allowing their full self to come, come into being, um, and then match that up with the academic promise. And being able to figure out what ultimately is their purpose. Um, I think another piece is that they're able to articulate what their values are, right? That they can leave this place having a sense of, here's what my non-negotiables are. Here's the difference between right and wrong. And I'm not simply just gonna go with the crowd. I'm gonna be a voice. I'm gonna be a leader. I'm gonna be someone who makes sure that I'm living as genuinely as possible, a life that that is mine, right? And not what others care or desire for me to be. Um, and I think it's also a transformational thing for the families, right, that that kind of take the journey with us, um, that families feel like they're able to feel more connected to, um, you know, to their child, to their student. And uh, in a way that in middle school, a lot of times families may feel like kids start to pull away from them or shut them out of their lives, that there is uh, a time period where, you know, I'm not saying it's easy, but that there is definitely the facilitating of more communication and a partnership between school, student, and family to be able to remain connected to their child in one of the most difficult time periods of their life. Um, So I think for us, that's important. The last piece I'll say is that they're lifelong relationships and friendships that are formed uh, at a middle school, which is really, I think, unique. Most people don't talk about their middle school friendships. They don't talk about going back to the middle school reunions. Um, and I think there's a reason for that, right? That middle school is sort of, for many people, this time period that you block out, you don't really worry about or think back to. Um, but for us, what we often hear is that these are my my folks for life. I can, they continue to keep in touch with each other. Um, they become uh, a source of, of support in moments of difficulty, but also are there at their greatest moments of achievement and celebration. Uh, and that obviously to me is one of the biggest things that I think we could provide people is the sense of lifelong community and friendship um, that they're able to tap into. Wonderful. And so you've done such an excellent job of conveying what Salle is and what it does. But I want to get into the how. So sure. in addition to being an educator, 
you are running an organization. There's payroll, there's staff, there's you're on the board. There's a lot of other aspects that go into educating kids other than the direct education. And so one thing that is remarkable about De La Salle is the retention of the faculty and staff. People spend time at De La Salle. I, I don't know what percentage, but I looked at the list of faculty and staff, and it's just De La Salle alum, De La Salle alum, De La Salle alum. And so when you're talking about cultivating that culture amongst your peers that you're working with to educate, how do you do that? And how do you make sure it's sustainable over the course of these decades-long careers that is so common at De La Salle? Definitely. I mean, I will say that it is a question, not just at De La Salle, but for the educational uh, sort of field in general, it's a big question, right? How do we continue to um, make sure that there is continuity and sustainability in the work that we're doing, especially post um, COVID? And when I say post, I don't mean, you know, that it's finished, but really it's the latest iteration of living in the world where COVID became something so big. Um, I I think that it's for a lot of teachers and administrators, there's a lot of burnout, right? Because of what we had to do seemingly overnight right, which is to provide continuity during a time of great, deep, you know, societal despair and, and challenge and, you know, and, you know, and difficulty. So in crisis, really. Um, and that took every single inch of our being to hold it together. And we didn't always have the preparation or tools to do that well. Uh, and I think most of us would tell you, even if we thought we did a decent job, um, it by no means, uh, felt like, or I think now that we're coming out of it, understood that it was, you know, it really was all encompassing or that we were able to hit all the objectives that schools would have hit in normal times, right? We're really going to deal with not just in the immediate aftermath, but I think for years to come with the uh, side effects of this thing. So um, I think for for educators in general, um, it is going to be a challenge, right? Um, Because I think just the world is different than it was you know, 15, 20 years ago. Um, so I think with that framing at De La Salle, I would say we're relatively blessed in being able to keep, I think, folks for a, a good amount of time above certainly the average uh, uh, school. Um, I think from last time I checked, you know, on average, you know, our faculty tend to stay on, you know, four to five years, right? Which is a, a big jump from the two-year average that you might see in other schools, right? Um, and so that makes a difference because people stay here over generations of Delos South students, not just, you know, one or two classes. Um, and so alums can come back and see folks that they that they were taught. And um, while four or five years is the average, there are people who've been there way longer than that, obviously, right? So um, that is something that I think is really important. How do we do it? I think it really speaks to the culture, right, of the school um, that we as adults try to model for the students the culture that we want them to live by, right? And, and I think if adults fake the funk, students feel that, right? And so a big part of the work that we do is really commit ourselves every year to saying, I'm asking you not just to be on staff or to be a faculty member. I'm asking you to be someone who can be accompanying young children on this journey. I'm asking you to be someone who can be there, at, who is at the school because you love what you do and this is your calling. And I think when you're able to be explicit about that, whether it's in the job interview process, um, in the recruitment stage, that attracts a certain type of person uh, to come to a school like De La Salle. And granted, we're a school that is of, of um, a particular means. Like we're not like another independent school that can offer the highest salaries in the city. But I think what people come in and are attracted to are is that culture, is that mission, and it's our student body, right? And I think that ultimately is what keeps people there, right? Is the sense of on a day-to-day, the work feels fulfilling and it's tough, but at the end of the day, you almost can't see yourself working anywhere else. It feels so fulfilling and gratifying to be feeling like you're making a difference, but also to feel like you're growing every year, that you're changing. I think because we're small, I think that also helps. I think there's an intimacy that comes with working at a place like De La Salle. You're known, you're seen, not just as a student, but also as an adult. Um, you know, I think that's really important for folks. 
increasingly, I think we're devoting more and more of our time and attention to making sure there are ample professional learning opportunities for faculty and staff, that they feel that every year they can get better at what they do, um, that they can lean on other colleagues and networks to learn about best practices. Um, that's very important. Um, and I think it's when you can be generous, be generous, right? I think that was one of the things I talked a lot about during COVID. Um, we were remote or hybrid or in this real social distancing era. Um, if there were times where I could take care of the faculty and staff and say, you know, here, here's a day where we can work from home, or this is something that's no longer necessary for us to do, or, you know, here's a way that we can create more efficient systems or policies, that those are the things that I think create sustainability. Yes, compensation and benefits are important, but along with those things, you want to be able to create a work environment that allows people to feel like you're doing everything as a leader and as an administration to look after them and to make sure that their efforts are being taken care of and are being respected. And in my experience, when that doesn't happen, um, that's when people leave, when they don't feel like this sense of, you know, I feel seen or I don't feel respected. Or I don't feel like not just that I'm respected, but my time is respected or my expertise is not respected. That's when people start to look elsewhere. Um, so for a place like De La Salle, those are some of the key ingredients that I think we often look at. It doesn't mean we're always perfect, but I think we we strive. And I think for the most part, our record speaks for that. Got you. And then continue with the theme of the nuts and bolts of running an organization. Yeah. So one part, important part of running an organization is finances. And so for you, I know that a lot of a head of school's job is going out, talking to people, trying to convey the mission and why it's so important to support. And so specifically in terms of alumni engagement, how do you see that as um, a component of that strategy to develop funds? Because I've been, so I work with this other organization called Student Shoulders to Shoulder. And one thing that is super key for us providing financial aid to the students, we basically provide service learning trips to kids and send them around the world is we want our alumni to engage. So in that way, how do you tell about the mission and how do you make sure that you have that engagement consistently so people feel like they want to invest back into the school? No, great question. I think it's definitely one of De La Salle's growth areas, right? And I think part of it has not been for lack of wanting, but a lack of capacity at times the school has had. Um, I think what I tell people is that as we approach our 40th year, we're really starting to grow out of the founding era of the school. And I think in the founding era, um, it was small enough that a lot of things could happen organically, right? So if you only had at certain points in time, 500 alums, you know, you didn't need to fill out a whole formal alumni program or strategy or approach. People would just come back and visit. You could, you know, keep touch with them informally. But as we now start to approach 2000 alums, um, it, is, it is something that requires us to be more intentional. Uh, requires us to develop strategy. Um, I think for me, one of the biggest things I'm excited about this year, as we go into um, the 23-24 year, as we approach our four year, um, is being able to hit the road and start to visit our alums that are increasingly living outside of New York. Um, I think before we used to see a lot of alums stay, but increasingly more and more of them, due to the shifting nature of work, due to where the opportunities are, um, they're outside of New York. And so I think being able to provide FaceTime with folks and say, you know, tell me what, what you're doing, but also I'm happy to share with you what's going on at the school today. Um, I think there are always important opportunities and moments um, to kind of put like, people back into the work of the school, um, but also be able to say to them, you know, what do you need at this stage in your life? How are we being able to touch base with alums at different stages of their careers and their lives? And be able to create a reciprocal relationship where it's not just, hey, I'm showing up to ask you for your support or your money, but how can we as a De La Salle community support you, right, in this stage of your life, whether it's networking, whether it's maybe wanting to join a group with other De La Salle parents or other folks who um, are in engineering or in tech, or what does it mean for, um, for us to be able to be a, a space to support you when you're thinking about college choices or financial aid or issues that come up in those areas. Um, I increasingly see De La Salle's next area of growth in that forming of a very uh, of a very formal program in that area. 
um, uh, well, especially when it comes to alums. Um, and I think the similar thing applies to not just the alums, but also supporters who are foundations or, or folks who are um, donors of the school or supporters, is it's not just about the money. It's how do we get people to be excited about the work that's happening at the school today? How do you find in appropriate ways, ways for them to have a direct impact in the work and the facets of the work that they're most excited about? So if there are people who have a real passion for healthcare and science, how do we find ways for them to be able to support, whether it's giving a workshop or, you know, being able to mentor students or other things that might be um, that they can offer beyond just giving up of their money or their or their time of their resources. Um, that I think is important towards growing a sense of support. Um, so it's what we really call stewardship, right? How do we continue to make sure people feel that we're connecting them and that we're reconnecting them back to that mission um, so that they feel excited and engaged? For sure. Uh, so I got to ask, in terms of advice you would give mm -hmm. to a college graduate, so a lot of times, especially... You know, when you're coming from places that are not the most flush with cash, you're coming from certain parts of the Bronx, certain parts of Brooklyn, it's a big temptation once you get into a good university, once you get the good job to kind of stay on that track and not give back as much. You know, you could work very corporate, but there's a part of me that's like, wow, the institutions that have paved the way for me have been so instrumental in giving me opportunity. And Sometimes when you're graduating college and you're looking at your debt, you're like, man, I don't, I know I want to do education. I know I want to go into government. I know I want to do those types of career fields. So if you're yeah. talking to a student in that type of situation, what are some words of wisdom that you would give? Because, you know, very well educated, you could have made a lot of decisions, but you're here. So what kind of mental framework should people take on? Hmm. That's a tough one because I mean there there's a practical answer I can give you and more of like a uh you know a more a more deeper uh mission driven spiritual answer I can give you. So I'll give you both. I'll give I'll give you two for the price of one. Okay. I think on the one hand, there's a reason why, you know, I think, you know, um, you know, people often cite that in education, particularly the teaching force, um, that there is a disparity in terms of who's represented on teacher staffs, right? So it tends to be white women who are the most overrepresented in the teaching force in the country. That's a that's a fact. Um, and also I would venture to say many other kinds of nonprofit, you know, type of setups or, or mission-driven things. And I think part of it is that um, for many of us, we can't look at those jobs, at least initially, because there isn't a ton of intergenerational wealth that is being transferred from one generation to another that allows us the possibility to even think about what does it mean to take on a job without thinking about the financial considerations, right, of taking on this job. Because it's either debt or it's supporting my family who are maybe immigrants or who are from working class uh, backgrounds. Maybe it's that you really wanna save up to buy that first house or that first apartment that anyone in your family has ever owned, right? Um, uh, or it's, you know, trying to find other ways to take care of people. So, um, or there's medical debt involved, right? So there's so many, I think, factors that you know, kind of foreclose us very early on from looking at things that may be more mission driven. Whereas with, I think, other sectors of our society, there is certainly a little more cushion to think about, let me just think about what my desires are to do in the world, right? I don't have to think about, you know, take care of my parents or taking care of dad, et cetera. So I think that's certainly one of those things as to why uh, for some folks that is already of, of practical consideration. And I would say that there's nothing wrong with saying, I need to take care of some of this stuff first before I can even start to think about everything else. Um, I don't think there's anything intrinsically wrong with that. It's just the reality, right, of, of that part. But there is a part of me that's also, you know, they also made some real clear decisions, right, which is, for me, there was a point where I made a decision to go to public university and college, right, because I knew that I would be graduating with less debt than I would have if I would have gone to another place. And um, that that meant something, right? To be able to leave somewhere with relatively little or no debt. Um, that when I applied to graduate schools, I made sure that um, uh, that I was applying and, and accepting any offers that were fully funded, where I was, where you know tuition was being paid for, I was getting some type of living stipend um, to do my work, 
um, that was also a decision. So there was also some conscious decisions that I made, Emmanuel, to be able to say, how do I free myself up to be able to follow what my calling is? And, and those are things that mentors and people in my life sat me down and talked about, right? It wasn't just something that I intrinsically knew, right? It was just people who said, look, Angel, here's what's ahead of you. Here are the decisions you can make. And from a financial standpoint, that's something you think about. The same thing goes for credit card debt, right? How many times I went through my college campus and was offered a credit card. And um, I had people in my life talking to me pretty early about financial literacy and decisions that I made at that point, how their impact would live out in the years to come. So I think that's another big thing I would say to folks to think about is really sit yourself with people, whether it's individuals or organizations or programs that give you that foundational knowledge to navigate the adult world. Because I think sometimes in college, we kind of fall into this false sense of we're still kids and we're just like bigger kids that have a bigger playground and that's college, but you're an adult now. And that world is very unforgiving. And how the choices that we make during that time uh, will have long lasting effects. So I think that's another piece of it. Um, but then, Emmanuel, honestly, the reason I think I came to this job um, ultimately was really to follow the questions that I'm asking. What are the questions that keep me up at night that I want to answer? But ultimately, when I wake up in the morning, I don't see myself anywhere else in the world, that this is exactly where I want to be asking and answering those questions. To, you know, at this moment in my life, that's a De La Salle. Who knows where that will go you know, in 10, 15 years? But that that's really what guides the work that I do, right? It's, it's what are these questions that are driving me to answer, um, that I'm driving myself to answer? How are they fulfilling to me, but also the people I work with? Um, but ultimately, when I wake up in the morning, do I feel a sense of joy? And do I feel a sense that there's nowhere else I'd rather work on? And I understand, as I, I think as we just talked about, that there is certainly a level of privilege that comes with that. But also there are ways that I had to work to make sure that that was possible, right? And that that didn't just come from just a self-help book or that it was just something that I, you know, um, I'm just saying to you because it sounds nice, but that there are real decisions that allowed me to be able to be in the space. And it's not everyone is able to do that for different reasons. And I fully understand that. But I think with education manual, there is, there is such a sense of fulfillment and purpose. It's also great, I think, for people who, who don't like monotony, <laughs> but also like safety and structure, uh, because there is a certain predictability and structure and ebb and flow to every year. But every year is so different because you have a different set of, of teachers and staff and students you're working with. So even if the structures and traditions are the same, there is a sense of novelty every year. There's a sense of new challenges. So I think folks who are interested in that work, um, folks that really want to do make a difference in a way that is tangible and impactful. I think education offers all of that, all of that in a nutshell. Um, and I, again, I could not see myself working in any other industry, uh, even if I know there are things that would pay more. Um, it is such a fulfilling vocation to take on. Understood. Thank you for that perspective. So we're going to close out doing kind of a rapid fire style. So, you know, okay. this is all feelings, no fact, just how you feel. So how do you define love? So I would say that it's sort of an unconditional immersing oneself in, um, in an activity or another person um, that allows you to fully step out of yourself to experience uh experience and to feel all of that that experience or person in a way that goes beyond oneself to me that's what love is about okay yankees or mets yankees good answer uh, <laughs> would you prefer to be in a position that you know you're meant to do or would you opt in for a period of time to do something to gain resources or status for a period of time? Definitely what I'm meant to do. Okay. Uh, how often do you run into challenges that make you think you're on the wrong path? Every day. <laughs> i would be lying to you if i said it was always a, a smooth ride no every day there's there's moments of doubt 
Uh, who are, are the people that have been, been the most impactful in cultivating who you are? Wow. That's a real, that's not a rapid fire question, Manuel. <laughs> um, gosh, you know, I mean, there's so many, I, I, I almost feel horrible answering the question, but I think if you really ask me, you know, I think to boil down to the top, you know, couple, I think, you know, definitely my mother was a big person in my life, um, sacrificed a lot for me to be in this country. Um, so she's definitely up there. Um, you know, I think, you know, certainly the, the founder of our school, Brother Brian, is a big, important figure in, in my life. Um, and, you know, I think that and then there's countless college professors that were there to really cultivate. I mean, the, the, the person that I spoke about earlier, Anthony Brown, a sociologist over at Hunter College, an amazing person in the pipeline. Um, but yeah, so many other people, Manuel, but those are just a few that come directly to mind and are directly in alignment with this conversation. Is there any city better than New York? No. Great answer. <laughs> <laughs> what virtue or characteristic do you most want to develop in yourself? How does one use position, authority, and power to serve other people rather than think about how it does something for you? Um, it's something I want to continuously cultivate and work on. All right. That's the end of the rapid fire. So, Dr. Gonzalez, thank you so much for taking the time. I greatly appreciate it. Is there anything that people should know if they want to connect with De La Salle, connect with you about how to support the mission before we sign off? Absolutely. Yeah, no, I would say definitely visit the school's website, um, dlsanyc.org. Um, I think it's a great, uh, we put a lot of work into that website. And I think it really gives a good sense of, of who we are. Um, we are coming up on celebrating our 40th anniversary. So I think there'll be a lot of opportunities for different parts of the community to come together or for folks who are new to us to come get to know us. Um, our doors are always open. We love showing the place around our kids. Uh, love telling you about the place. So um, feel free to reach out to us and let us know uh, if you're interested in doing that. And, and we would love to, to tour you around. So other than that, you know, really appreciative to have this time with you. It, I think the greatest gift an educator ever has is being able to um, see their students leave and then come back uh, and to see them doing wonderful things like you are Emmanuel. So really a blessing and honor to be on here with you today. My pleasure. You have a good one. All right, Emmanuel. Take care, brother. Thank you for listening to this episode of Nonprofit Profits. If you enjoyed what you hear, be sure to follow, rate five stars, or send me an email on how I can get better. I've been upping the audio, trying to get a pop filter, doing all that type of stuff. You can drop something in the Q&A. Also, my email, rafter123 at gmail.com. That's rafter, like a rafter in the ceiling, 123 at gmail.com. Thank you for hanging with me, and I'll see you on the next episode. Peace.